Is Christianity or Secular Humanism a Better Foundation for Human Rights? A Conversation Between a Christian and a Secular Humanist. This is a follow-up to the dialogue between myself, Ian Bushfield, and Dr. Andy Bannister on just that question. This is a recording of the audience question and answer period of the event hosted on February 28, 2018 by Apologetics Canada in partnership with Westside Church in Vancouver. To find out more about the BC Humanist Association, visit bchumanist.ca. Let's get started. Now, the way we're going to do this, we're going to go until 9.30, and the way we're going to do this is you can address this question to any one of our speakers, but the other speaker will have a chance to offer a counter-response if there is any. Uh, so let's start with this gentleman right here. So um, this evening, I've heard a term being used, and some of us were asking this question, of human flourishing, human rights leading to human flourishing. Could you just define both of you, what human flourishing actually is and what it looks like mm -hmm. in this discussion. Yeah. For it. Who would you, who would yeah, that sure. start? I can start. Sure, uh, I think that's a fantastic question. I think it's one we could probably spend another 90 minutes discussing. Uh, human flourishing for me involves the ideas of uh, freedom and autonomy and the ability to live a more full life. So. It's sort of the opposite of suffering in a lot of ways. So if I'm suffering, I'm not flourishing. Can I build a good life for myself, my family, my children, their children? Uh, some of the local First Nations around here have this idea of like seven generations. Can you have a society that promotes a way of life that can sustain itself seven generations on? And we look at the way we're treating the world right now, and the answer might be no. So. Human flourishing ties together a lot of these big concepts, and it's not really a simple or quick answer, but hmm. it's something to think a lot more about for sure. Yeah. Okay. I hope Andy? that's helpful. So, yeah, just to uh, echo Ian's remark, oh, the gentleman's gone. It was a great question, because it is a term you can throw around, uh, around quite easily. Um, and it's also hard to pin down, actually, because on the one hand, you know, as Ian sh shared there, you know, it might be easy to say, well, a life you know, free of suffering, but then I'm also reminded of Oscar Wilde, the great playwright, who said, you know, the, the greatest uh, tragedy in a, man's, in a person's life is not when they're weary of suffering, but when they're weary of pleasure. Uh, and so things are, are more complicated. So I, I think to give a kind of sort of 30-second answer to it, I would say freedom is key, and Ian used that word, but there's two types of freedom. There's freedom from, which is when nobody restricts or constrains you, but there's also freedom to be. And I think the huge question is, is what is a human life supposed to look like? What is a human being supposed to be? And that raises a much, much bigger question of purpose and what, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a good a human life well-lived looks like. But human flourishing is to be free to, to be that, to be everything that we were, we were created and intended and designed to be. And my word, there's a topic for another evening. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, feel free to stay by the microphone until your questions are answered. Uh, it's up to you, though, yeah. if you want to just kind of... And actually, if you could also give your name as, uh, as well, because it'd yes. be nice Ian and I then know who we're addressing as, as well. This gentleman here. Hi. What's your name, sir? Hi, I'm Pat. Hi, Pat. I'm an atheist. Hi, uh, and actually, the last time I was in this building was to watch the production of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, so I'll let that <laughs> <one> <laughs> sink in. Um, uh, Andy, you mentioned a few times Jesus on the cross. Um, my understanding of that story is that if you accept the, this 
torturing to death of a human being, that you'll have everlasting life and it'll be pleasant. And if you don't accept it, that you won't have, you will have everlasting life, but it'll be horribly painful. Where's the human right in that? Where's the right to make a decision based on your own personal judgment and mm. not be punished for it later? That's a, that's a really great question, Pat, and I'd say a couple of things. A lot on how you view that story depends on what you, what you think uh, what you think is actually gone wrong with human beings. And so I would say the first place to start is, is there actually something wrong with the human condition? Is there something actually fundamentally broken in us that actually what Christianity is offering you is a diagnosis? So in the sense that if you were to go into your doctor and your doctor diagnosed that you've got a terrible stomach condition and you'll die if you don't take this particular drug, and if you were to say, how dare you? How dare you, doctor, impinge on my freedom by telling me I have to accept your uh, diagnosis? How ridiculous. I'm going to be free to reject it and do something else entirely. Your doctor would look at you and go, I, I think you've misunderstood. I've actually diagnosed there is actually something serious going on that it requires treatment. And what Christianity says, it says there is actually something fundamentally broken and twisted in human nature, so drastic that it needed the cross to put it right. The interesting thing is I think that human beings are broken is something that many, many atheists agree with as well. So John Gray, one of the most well-regarded European atheists, taught for many years at London School of Economics, says in his book Straw Dogs, um, he remarked, he says, I disagree with most of Christianity, but the one thing Christianity got right was the fall. Because he said, if you just simply look around at, the, at human nature, look around at the world, it's obvious that human beings are one messed up animal, as he puts it, the story we saw on the screen behind us. Or if you don't believe that human beings have a problem, just spend 30 seconds on Twitter or just read the <laughs> comment section on any newspaper. Uh, and so the cross is not a case of God going, well, if you believe this, you get a nice life. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. It's God going, Pat, there's actually something that needs fixing here. This is what I'm offering to you as my gift, even though you want nothing to do with me, to actually put right what has fundamentally gone wrong. Would you like to offer a counter response sure. to that? I mean, we had a question the first question where we, I think, perfectly agreed, and now here's somewhere we can perfectly, perfectly disagree. disagree. I'm not okay. saying humans are perfect. I think atheists are well aware that humans have limitations and flaws. My personal view is that's not a fundamental nature of our being. Humans have the capacity for great good and great evil. We're all this mix. We're not black and white. We're all just trying to get along. So we are this evolved ape, like we said earlier. The other thing, you mentioned it earlier, and it ties into the discussion about the cross, is you've put it in this transactional fra uh, framework, the idea that Jesus was paying for our sins, but that transaction suggests the money, the, the exchange was with someone else, if we're going to put it in that cross analogy, or maybe the analogy breaks down there, but why couldn't he have just given it away to us, you know, if absolve us of that? And this isn't a point for uh, oh, back and forth, but I know you'd really want to jump in on there, but maybe we'll come back oh, well, to it with another question. Yeah. It's just things that are going in my head. I'm not saying you have to defend. I know <laughs> well, you have a response. We'll just have to stick to the rules, one response each, and That's we'll move fine. to the next person here so we can go through as many people as possible. Hello, What's hi. What's your name, sir? Uh, my name is Ali. Um, I, first of all, I want to thank both of you for coming out and uh, having this event with us. Um, question for Ian. Um, I have two premises that I want to lay out, and then I have a question. Okay? If human rights are relative, as you have conceded, and it follows then that your version of human rights could be wrong, then it means you don't know if your version of human rights is true, let's say versus um, Stalin's or Hitler's or anyone else. 
And second premise is, you want, as a humanist, a stable foundation for society. You want some sort of truth to unite us. Wouldn't it be better, rather than having faith in your version of humanism, to instead have faith in God, his imperfect, in, uh, perfect, infallible word that not only gives us a practical guide for having a stable um, a society with a moral foundation, but also a, an irrefutable truth that can unite us no matter what human ideology comes against because it is God's infallible word. Right. What is okay. Would you like to answer? A lot there, and credit to you for expressing that so well and so clearly. Uh, on the first premise, what if there is no true objective way to approach it? If I call myself a relativist, that's what I'm saying is there is no, this is the best system. There might be better systems and worse systems, and that's how I've sort of approached it personally. But on the um, second point and this more broader question, I sort of bring it back to when I mentioned right at the end this idea of faith in humans versus faith in a higher power. And one way that I think about that is Occam's razor, this idea that we should reduce or extra assumptions about the world. And so I know people exist. I know people, like I've said, and we all, I think, would agree that people have capacity for good and evil or whatever that means, harming others and not harming others or building societies or tearing them down. So those things I can see and I have felt and I can experience and we can talk about and agree upon. How do I know that his Bible is correct? Even if his Bible is correct, how do I know his Bible and not the Catholic Bible or we haven't even really gotten into which of the branches of Christianity is correct if we're going to go with Christianity and we're sitting here in one of the most diverse cities in North America, how do I know the Christians are correct and not the Hindus and which kind of Hindu or the Buddhists and which kind of Buddhists, they're a little different, or the Sikhs or the Muslims. So the simplest answer for me is that not all religions, all religions kind of disagree on that fundamental principles. So they can't all be right, but they can all be wrong. Eddie? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd, I'd agree with where, he, where Ian ended. They obviously can't all be right. And so, I mean, I have, I have no time for a kind of sort of lazy pluralism that sort of says, you know, you can believe whatever you want. I think, I think things really matter. I always think it's interesting, we, don't, we, we touched on this a little bit this evening, that, uh, that it's interesting where you look at the, the birth of the human rights tradition within the Christian framework, because as, um, I forget the name, but there's actually a Buddhist scholar who said, you know, it's not, we have to recognize there's no, it's no accident that Buddhism, for example, never spawned a human rights tradition because of its anthropology. And so in terms of human rights this evening, I really do think there's only one framework or only one worldview that has actually given rise to the human rights tradition for very, very good reason. Um, but I think I want, to just put, I want to push back on, there's lots of things I could say here, but I want to respond just to the relativism point. So sorry, Ali, this is gonna be slight of a tangent from what you asked, but, but, it's, but it's the tangent that, uh, the, 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 that Ian went down. I think it's an important one. The problem with, with relativism was beautifully summed up by a gentleman called Arthur Leff, who was an atheist, taught at Yale University for many years, and, uh, and wrote what to this day is considered to be one of the best uh, essays ever on this whole question. And he says at the beginning of this, he said, look, if there's no God, he said, there's only two places we can go um, for things like justice and right and good and so on and so forth. We either allow every person to create their own, which is the ultimate relativist idea, you come up with your version, 
Steve, my version, and so on and so forth. And then the problem is you've replaced God with eight billion little godlets running around, and we now, how do we resolve godlet claims? Or we let a bigger entity like the state just tell us what to do. But the problem is, whether it's a little godlet or the state telling you what to do, on relativism, on an atheism, and remember he was an atheist, you can look the person in the eye who's told you what to do and say, yeah, says who? Who gives you the right to tell me what to do? And he unpacks that over about 20 pages, but then he ends, I just want to end with this quotation, he ends with this beautiful little poem when he recognizes the problem this leads to. He says, despite all that I've said, he says, nevertheless, napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved, those who stood up to and died resisting Hitler, Stalin, Armin and Pol Pot, oh and General Custard too, have earned salvation, those who acquiesce deserve to be damned, there is in the world such a thing as evil, but all together now, Says who? God help us. Okay, this gentleman here. What's your name, sir? <clears throat> yes, uh, I'm named after one of Dr. Bannister's uh, great countrymen and one of the best people to have ever lived. My name is Darwin, and I'm obviously humanist. So, uh, listen, uh, just let's get the Hitler thing out of the way here, okay? We've, we've gone around <laughs> the edges. In Mein Kampf, he says he's clearly a Catholic. Now, that's in the 1920s when he was in prison. But in 1941, after Pearl Harbor, to his adjutant general, Gerhard Engel, he says that he'll be a Catholic until the day he dies. So, and that's in Richard Dawkins' books, The God Delusion. I forget the page number, but you're welcome to look it up. So he was a Catholic. Let's get that clear, okay? Actually, my, no, my with all due respect, no, I'm, I'm going to push I'm back on you on my, that. I'm not finished my query. I'm not finished my query. You've had your time. Now, now let me have so. my time. Let's Thank let you. him finish speak, and then you okay. can respond yeah. to that as well. My question is concerning uh, Bertrand Russell and um, his yes. great essay, uh, why I'm not a Christian, is for those of you who don't know who Bertrand Russell was, a Nobel laureate and a first signer of the uh, Humanist Manifesto in the 1930s and also a great mathematician. And he came up to the conclusion uh, in his essay, why I'm not a Christian, is because in order to believe in Jesus as, and Christianity, you have to believe that Jesus was the wisest and best human being that ever lived, ever lived. And he's most obviously not. 80% of Christians have not read the Bible, just like any other religion. 80% of believers have not read Is their holy question, book. Is there a question, sir? I want to know, how do you handle the fact that Jesus said so many wicked things in the Bible? Wicked things. Absolutely, like I've come not to bring peace, but the sword. That's just one, and there's many of them. How do you handle okay. that? If he's not the greatest okay. human being that ever can lived, I, um, how can you be a Christian? Let's get back to that. Let's get Thank okay. you very much. A couple of things. I'm just going to, sorry for interrupting you, but I, wanna, I had to push back on the Hitler piece because it was just such historical nonsense. There's been really good work done on Hitler by a number of historians who say that actually, interesting, both sides, atheists tend to like to use Hitler to paint him as a Christian, and then I confess, Christians try and use <laughs> Hitler as an example of atheism. Hitler was one messed up individual, probably kind of neo-pagan is the best word to use him. He certainly tried to use the Christian peace early on, and unfortunately I wish more German Christians stood up to him, but then he also, once he came into power, called Christianity a damnable philosophy. He attacked the idea that it said that all men were equal, and he had absolutely no time for Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who did the work they were doing trying to rescue and preserve the Jewish uh, community. So uh, Hitler was neither an atheist nor a Christian, some kind of pagan, ultimately a moral monster. So, and I would certainly not use Dawkins as a historian for for Hitler. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a very, very strange rabbit trail to go down. But on your particular point on Jesus, 
Obviously, you gave me one example there, so let's, let's use that. It's a classic example of how we can misuse a text. Christians can do this with atheists. We can, I, can, I, can bring you, I can fish you quotes out of Bertrand Russell. I can fish you things out of when I last spoke to a major humanist group. It was in Toronto. H.G. Wells was hanging on their wall. I could bring you some things out of H.G. Wells, some of them out of context, others not so much so. But let me take that one example that you gave, I come not to bring peace but the sword. The very fact that you quoted that tells me you haven't read the passage because if you read the passage, Jesus is talking about that those who follow him, following Jesus, is going to divide people. Families will be divided between those who follow Jesus and those who want nothing to do with those who follow Jesus. He's actually talking about the persecution that will come for his own followers. And what's interesting, of course, that prediction came true because for the first 300 years of his existence, Christianity was a small persecuted minority. And so go when you look at the uh, waves of persecution that happened under the Roman Empire, it's actually a miracle in many ways that Christianity survived. And as Rodney Stark, I quoted him early, like the great historian of the early church, and not a, a sort of an agnostic, I think, is where Rodney is philosophically, points out that despite all that, Christianity went from being 0.004% of the Roman Empire to 51% within 300 years. When Christians got their hands on power, I grant you things went wrong. Because religion, or in fact ideology plus power, always goes wrong. And to bring back to Hitler where you started, to go the lesson from that is when anybody, atheist, humanist, or religious, brings their ideology into the wheels of power, then there's a problem. Stalin did it, Christians have historically done it, there are parts of the Muslim world today where it's happening. Always be suspicious of anybody who has an ideology or a worldview who then feels that they need to use power to inflect that on others. And I hope, I think he and I would agree that freedom of religion and belief or non-belief is hugely important. And both Christians and non-Christians need to learn from the mistakes of their own past and take that very seriously going forward. Would you like to offer a response? Very quickly, or? I'll yeah. just... Uh, very Quickly, I'll just say yes, I agree. I mean, I will add the nuance that Stalin didn't bring. Athe atheism is the lack of belief in God, right? That's not what drove him to murder millions of people. It was his belief that communism was the best way to put things forward. Now, he did try to force people to be atheists, and that was wrong. He did. And we agree. Uh, I'll just, as you mentioned, I appreciate your clarification on Hitler, and I won't push back on that at all because... Like I've said multiple times, I'm not the historian here, I'm not the philosopher. The reason why I jumped up very early and said, let's not bring Hitler into this, <laughs> is because frankly, it's a cheap debating tactic, Absolutely. right? It's meant to trivialize the discussion, try to get you, and something like that, and I wasn't interested in it. I'm glad we've had a productive discussion so far. So right. thank you for that. All right. Yes. <laughs> that deserves an applause, I think. Let's move to this gentleman. What's your name, sir? Jeremy. Hi, I'm a regular attendee of uh, Westside. Uh, to bring uh, focus to something that's hiding in plain view, the idea of intrinsic value, which should be a part of this discussion, uh, what would you say is the uh, quantifiable value of, of intrinsic value, or how does it rank in the universe of a human being? Could you speak into the microphone? Yeah, we sorry, I catch the last bit. So, what what is the intrinsic value of a person? What is that value quantifiably, and how does it rank in the universe? Are you addressing it to yeah, anybody I guess in particular? You went first or? last time. I can. No, okay. We can both have a go at it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're both happy to have a go at that. Uh, 
it's kind of a weird question if you're asking like how many dollars is this young lady in the front row worth? It, it kind of, everyone laughs, right? Because <laughs> we kind of get that human life isn't really quantifiable in a way. It's a sort of intangible value. Even I say that as an atheist and that's just my wanting people to also think of me that way. I don't want you to take away my autonomy or things like that. And so I don't think I can quantify it. Now you could, we could play the trolley problem and say you're driving this trolley down the track and you have to throw the switch so you don't kill one person, but then it's going to kill five or which way and do we quantify it that way? And the real, realistic answer is I don't think it's quantifiable and that's why these problems are hard. And we don't really have a good answer as an atheist or potentially even as a theist, and I'll let Andy speak to that angle. Um, yeah, so I can't really quantify it for you. It's intangible. It's unquantifiable. Thanks, uh, thanks Ian. And thank you, Jeremy, for the question. I, I think I'd say I'm going to take a slightly similar route to, uh, to Ian, but then obviously take it in a, sli in a, in a, in a different direction at the end. I think... I think if we, could, if we could quantify it and say, well, the, the reason human beings have intrinsic value is because of X, Y, and Z, then we've actually admitted they don't have intrinsic value. You know, my, my iPad doesn't have intrinsic value. It has instrumental value. I can play Candy Crush Saga while sitting on the washroom. Um, <laughs> never borrow my iPad for that. that you don't know where it's been. Um, but I think instinctively we recognize once you start trying to do that with human beings, we have a problem. If we say that you know, Steve is worth you know, $5.37 because that's what his chemical components are worth on eBay, <laughs> I think if you thought I seriously believed that, you'd be worried. Um, if we start ranking people based on earnings, if we said, okay, those of you who earn over $60,000 can sit in the front, those of you who earn less than $30,000 during the cheap seats at the back, I think you'd, be, you'd, you'd say to the stewards on the door, that's monstrous. Um, if we start ranking people based on how popular they are, um, you know, how many friends you have, both real ones and the pretend ones you accumulate on social media, um, there'd be a problem. And I think all of those things show, look, it ultimately comes down to either human beings have intrinsic value, that ontology word, our very nature is that we have value, or we, or we don't. It's a, it's a binary thing. What I would say, though, from a Christian perspective, to give a hint into it, I think value comes through, there's a relational quality to it. So, for example, why do I value, why do, why do I value my wife? Um, I've been married to you for 20 years. I couldn't actually give you an instrumental reason. I value her because of who she is and that, and that, re that relationship of love we have between us. It's not because you know, she's a great cook or a great mum or she laughs at my jokes, I don't know why, or because of whatever she earns. That, none of those things. It comes out of the relationship that I have with her. And I think in the Christian tradition, that's then applied to human beings. And so it's because of who God has created us to be and because of the relationship of love he has for us that gives that, that, that intrinsic value such that it doesn't matter what you earn, what you look like, how popular you are, whether you have a British accent, a bald head or whatever, <laughs> to go, you have intrinsic value. You can't have it, you can't have less, you can't have more and nobody can take it away from you. All right. Next gentleman here. Hi, my name... Hi, my name is Daniel. Um, thank you both for being here. I'm super nervous just asking a question, so I can't imagine how tough it is being up there. I've never done this before, actually, so. <laughs> so props to you. Uh, my question is, um, uh, you spoke of how human rights are based, oh, shoot, this is mainly directed at Ian. You spoke of how human rights are based on what leads to human flourishing. It seems that most of what we know about our human flourishing is based on retrospectively looking at the past to determine how societies and cultures performed. As we move forward into uncharted territory with our morality, how does secular humanism 
provide a framework and method to determine what will cause human flourishing when new topics or issues of morality arise? That's a great question, Daniel. Mm. And you did great. Uh, no, you did. It's, I've done that and it's very nerve wracking. So it's a good question, this idea of we only have the past to look at. And the approach I take as a humanist is a sort of mix of science because science can help us answer questions. It can't really tell us what to value, but it can tell us how to approach these questions. And so we take the scientific method of observation, experimentation, hypotheses, and all these things and apply it, and we can somewhat apply it to human flourishing once we've agreed what our values are, because those are, I think, something we have to talk about and discuss, and we can't just look to science to tell us what to value, because that can lead to dark paths if you stop valuing people, for example. That's how you get eugenics. But science can tell us that if we do value people, what we can start to look at is what, what has happened in the past. Can we generate a hypothesis based on that? And then drawing that forward, we should say, we expect if we, say, enact protections on gender identity and expression, that that will mean more trans people should be able to work without being fired unjustly. And I think that's how we sort of apply it to new issues, if that makes sense. Hmm. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, that was a, that was a, I, I like the, the angle you took there, Ian. And it's a great question, um, Daniel, as well. It also ties into a, a topic we, we've touched on a little bit this evening. It ties into the whole question of progress, which, hmm. is, which is interesting. You know, how, do, how does one talk about progress when you've, you've, you've got some sort of hint in the rearview mirror, <laughs> but you don't know where you're going? Because, of course, progress implies a destination. Right? If I'm out hiking in the wilderness and my wife rings me up on my cell phone and says, how's the hike going? And I say, I'm progressing. She will assume I'm nearing my destination, you know, not, not lost in the back of the mountains with my packed lunch stolen by a group of marauding squirrels. Um, and so when we talk about progress and we love to use that word, that sort of implies that we're heading somewhere. And that's, I think, interesting, interesting language. Um, so I think I'd say a, a couple of things here from the Christian perspective. I think focusing in again on what it means to be human, what a human being really is, that value and that dignity we, we all have and we all bear as, as image bearers because of who God has made us to be, then we can start unpacking questions like how do we build societies that, that reflect that? And that's going to lead some tough decisions, and Ian touched on this. We're going to have to, we're going to have to have, uh, we can't run away from questions like what does the good life look like and with the implication that some ways of living our life are not as worthy and are not as living up to our high standard of calling as human, of, to be human beings as others are. I think that you know, somebody who spends their life sitting in their mum's basement eating pizza and watching Game of Thrones reruns <laughs> versus somebody who perhaps gives their life working for Médecins Sans Frontières or the United Nations trying to bring justice and healthcare and wherever in some of the war-torn corners of the world, you can look at those two lives and go, one of those lives has been better lived. And I think we increasingly find it uncomfortable to do that, but if we're going to take seriously what it means to be human and what human value and dignity mean, we can't avoid those questions of the good life and what they look like, and that hopefully that will help navigate us a bit as we go into, I think, even more complex ethical situations ahead of us, because technology and science tend to raise bigger questions, not, <laughs> not close them down. All right, over here, <coughs> your name? My name is Marco, and this question is for both of you. Uh, where does neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism fit into human rights? Uh, both of you have kind of mentioned that either Christianity or Western society has it right, uh, but both hint at kind of a cultural imperialism, uh, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to remember who has the real power at the UN. Uh, good. 
Do you want me I to think go first? I started the last yeah, one. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go, to go first. And particularly being British, you know, immediately <laughs> I feel so sensitive. Um, you know, I have as, a British because passport let's, too. Let's easy. be honest, the sun, the sun never set on the British Empire because not even God would trust us in the dark. So. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things, Marco, in, in, built into this question that I'd just like to touch on briefly, and, and I'm very happy to, to pass the baton to you know, my esteemed dialogue partner here. Um, I think, firstly, of course, built into that question is, is what do we do, and, and Ian and I are actually talking backstage about this during the, during the break, what do we do about, the, about the, the, the sins or the errors of the past? You know, look, here in Canada, right, there's a, there's a complex history uh, with the peoples who were here before the, before the Europeans came. But that's in the past. If you're an immigrant who landed two years ago, how are you responsible for what Canadians did you know, 150, 200, 250 years ago? That's a complex conversation. How do we deal with historic injustices done in the name of colonialism or imperialism? So I think we have to think that through, and that's not an easy conversation. Um, but again, it flows out of this idea of if the people who are affected are image bearers, they have value, they have dignity, then without necessarily saying, you know, the recently landed immigrant is guilty because of what happened in the past, perhaps we can still have a conversation around there is still a right thing to do, even though I may not be personally culpable. But the second half of, of, your, of your question I'd just like to touch on for a minute. Yeah, I'd, I would want to be very clear, and I think this probably goes for Ian as well, I'd, I'd hate any of us up here on stage to be heard to be saying, Western culture is wonderful and superior, we're better than anybody else. I clearly don't think that's the case. I mean, it'd be a ludicrous position. I mean, I've got a friend of mine in the States who teaches at a college in New York um, who wrote a wonderful book. His name is Mike Pierce, and he wrote a wonderful book called Why the Rest Hate the West. And it's a really interesting, <coughs> sobering take on what the rest of the world think about us as, as, as Westerners. There are some great things in Western culture that I think we can be excited and proud about. There are also some things that we can be embarrassed about. However, when it comes to human rights... If they exist, if human rights and dignity exist, we can't avoid the fact that transcends culture. So no culture can say, hey, we invented this, this is ours, and that's the danger about saying Western culture invented human rights. But if we've discovered these things with the help of other civilizations together, then I think we can turn around and say, this, this, this way of behaving is universal. If it is universally true that human beings have freedom of belief and, and freedom of political association, then to uh, restrict that is wrong wherever it is. It's wrong in Canada, it's wrong in China, it's wrong in Africa. But I think we need to be careful in our language, and I apologise if we haven't been careful enough tonight, and say, hey, the West invented this. I don't yeah. think the West did invent it. I think it's real and it exists. Um, and I think there are some good things here in the West, but I spend a lot of my time in the East as well, and there's a lot we can learn as Westerners from there. But let me pass the baton. That's hard to pick up off. There's a lot I actually really agree with in there. Uh, you touch on colonialism, and uh, like we've been talking about, one of the things you hear so often in Vancouver, but I think it's still worth saying, and I meant to actually say it when I first sat down and hadn't heard it yet, but you know, is this acknowledgement that we are on the traditional and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Salatooth nations of the um, Coast Salish peoples. And that recognition sometimes gets said in a very glib, almost like formulaic, ritualistic way in Vancouver, but it's a recognition that there's grave and ongoing injustices here. And that idea that it's unseated, it's in a lot of Canada there were treaties made and maybe they were fair, maybe they weren't. Uh, but in BC, mostly they weren't. British, Spanish, other settlers moved here 
and just told the local indigenous people to get out. And that sets up this situation, like Andy was talking about, where new people are moving here all the time and it creates this conflict of, and I think one of the things you were talking about behind stage with me is this idea of responsibilities that we don't talk about. And I think that's a great thing that humanists or Christians and pretty much everyone can start to think about is, what are our responsibilities as citizens? What do I do with my privileges sitting up here as you know, a young white man who doesn't really have to worry about really anything I say? Like maybe I'll offend some people, but it's really easy for me to say sorry though. And so I can try and do that and I can try and make the world a little bit less bad and that's just, the best I can try to do. And like you said, you know, the West, I didn't mean to imply, is the pinnacle. Even if I think Canada is less bad than every country in the world, and I'm not sure about that, we can still do better. <laughs> and we should. Okay. Uh, to be honest, when it comes to the issue of uh, the First Nations people and things like that, I myself have an immigrant background, so I, I find yeah. myself... I. I I'm very much lost on this issue. I don't know what to think about it all. That's just my, the liability of my immigrant background. This gentleman here. Uh, my name is David. Uh, my question is for Dr. Bannister. <clears throat> Hi, David. Hi. Uh, you mentioned John Locke's argument that all men are created equal. And unfortunately for John Locke, half of human beings are not men. Uh, and I wonder what you make of the fact that when it comes to the modern fight for women's equality, as far as I know, it didn't emerge from theological considerations. It's not as though people were going, oh, it, Paul said that um, there's no longer male nor female in Christ. It emerged from secular arguments from people like John Stuart Mill, who was an atheist, who, people who were making appeals not to God, but just to human flourishing and to basic uh, secular principles. So I wonder what you'd make mm. of, of that fact. That's a, good, that's a good question. I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I mean, a comment I made, I made earlier, I think what's very, very interesting, well, actually, it's a back up from John Stuart Mill and others. I think what's interesting when you look at the, the flow of, of philosophy is that ideas influence ideas influence ideas. So John Locke was influenced very much by the Christian tradition. He then went on and influenced the humanist tradition. And the, the, the joy of a book like I mentioned Luke Ferry, A Brief History of Thought, is Luke, who's an atheist, does a wonderful job of tracing some of the ebb and flow. So John Stuart Mill wasn't philosophizing in a vacuum. You know, he was the great kind of utilitarian thinker and very much in the idea of how do you create the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, but there were influences that, that, that led into that. I think many who have looked at the history of, of human rights and uh, whether that applies to, to women or those who are not, you know, traditionally the elite classes and so on and so forth, there has been an awful lot of work pointing backwards and as I say, looking at, say, certainly in terms of the origins of the Christian faith, the way that really the impact that made sociologically in its time. Because we forget just how, you know, the, how the, the, the Aristotle cast a long shadow down through history around slavery and women. Aristotle had a negative view of slaves, women, and children. And, uh, and even without mounting an argument, Christianity really defeated that just by, just by sociological uh, impact. And then, of course, that then spread on through things like the Irish. When Christianity comes across into Ireland, which is the way it came you know, through into the British Isles, you find someone like St. Patrick, 6th century, um, you know, powerfully advocating for the rights of slaves, because he had been one, and also women and children. It was those three that often go together. Now, I completely concur with you that I think Christians should have done more. I look back at my own tradition and think there's always times when Christians could have done more, particularly because of what we, we should have known. But also when you look at them in their time period, what Christians did do, 
I think is absolutely tremendous. And I think uh, that there have been, and around the world today, there are many people at the forefront of women, women's rights who are doing that because they believe in that idea that human beings bear the, bear the image of God. And to say that somebody doesn't because of their sexuality, because of their gender, because of their race, is actually, if you're a Christian, it's blasphemous because it's effectively spitting in the face of, of God's image. And, uh, and so I think Christians have been involved in that, in that fight, but not only, and there are many, many, many secular voices as well. And so I think to try and differentiate is problematic. Okay, Ian? Uh, I feel like that question was to you. And, okay. Uh, I was almost wondering if we had time to hear from a woman. Yes, please. Oh, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Based on that question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I realize we're out of time, and so I'm kind of squeezing yeah, around. Yeah, um, unfortunately we are out of time. Oh. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, oh. I tried. I do want to say, you, give me, give you've, me had, one, one you've had two and a half hours, and I'm the first woman to speak. Yes, I'm, so, I'm with you. Just one minute. I'm fine to stay. Yeah, I'm fine to <laughs> Okay. Um, I got nowhere to be. <laughs> let's, let's hear from this lady then, um, and then after, after her question is answered, uh, Andy and Ian have graciously offered to stay here a little bit longer. So if you have questions that you just didn't get around to asking, come see them here. And yep. uh, we will have to be out of here by 10 o'clock, but we do have a little bit of time. So let's hear from this Thank lady. you. So my What's name, your name? My name's Kisa, and I'm Hi. named after a Scandinavian village. So, um, and I'm also a lawyer, but that does still make me human. I'd like to thank um, <laughs> my, my co-gendered person for letting me go ahead of her, but um, so my background, I, I've actually spent the last seven months on the Highway of Tears um, studying Indigenous laws, and a lot of Indigenous laws focuses a lot on restoration of family, mm. and the values that are inherent and that are passed down through generations, um, through the ancestors, through spirituality, um, around how you create belonging, and uh, it's been a very eye-opening experience for me. My background is in um, law reform. I worked for the BC Law Institute when I was um, articling on the UBC campus. And so about seven years ago, I was a student in a study of the human right in BC that is almost never, ever brought before the tribunals. And that human right is family status. Family status is it's different from sexuality or gender. It's, uh, an example would be if a woman is fired from her job because she's not able to get adequate daycare because she's a single mother. Um, so that would be discrimination on family status grounds. So my question mm. is, why are our human rights so individualistic? Oh, mm. And are human rights actually a state construct or a social construct to create belonging? Ooh. Ooh. I know. Wow. Good question. I'm really wow. glad we got one more. <laughs> Where have you been all evening? That's a, that's a question. Do you want to start or do you want me to? I don't mind. Do you want to go? Sure. Uh, I do believe, uh, as I've said a few times, that human rights are in most ways a social construct. And if you look, I think we actually talked about this briefly in backstage, that this past 30 years has been very individualistic. This sort of neoliberalism, if you want to get the buzzword of the day, right? But, and that's why we're not talking about responsibilities. And so I like, 
I haven't actually thought about this angle of human rights and the sort of collective or group rights, I guess, has been something that has been talked about. And it's tricky and it's challenging, but it's, a, it's an interesting concept, and I'm interested in more. And I want to, and this is where I think the humanist, my approach that I've sort of advocated for this, let's discuss it more and let's build off it. And hopefully we can build a better world that way. That's just what I'm going to say again. So I like it. I'm for it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the way you framed it as the kind of right that no one, what no one talks about. And I think um, I'm going to sort of, be, sort of pick up where, where, where Ian left off. I mean, I do, think, I do think a lot of rights talk, if we're not careful, becomes very individualistic because it, because it works well that way. My rights, we like that idea. These, these are mine, hands off. And uh, you know, anyone who dares trample on, on my right to X, Y, or Z, you know, I'm going to come and give you a piece of my mind. Um, I think that breaks down a number of ways, particularly when, when, you, when it collapses into a kind of sort of social contract theory, because what happens if you don't have the ability to take part in the social contract? Um, I mentioned Down syndrome earlier, but there are people who are more profoundly impaired um, than, than, than that condition, who have nothing they can give to society. So what does a social contract look like? And e equally, if we construct human rights merely in terms of a kind of, well, we need a way of regulating society so we don't beat each other up. As somebody said, well, now you just collapse human rights to a non-aggression pact, and human rights becomes this thing we do because we're all scared of each other. And so in fear, we sort of have to put these barriers up to protect us from each other. And ironically, human rights then pushing us apart rather than pulling us together. So I think we've got to find a way of, of talking more corporately. Responsibility is one way of doing that. I love to bring this in right at the end, but <laughs> I do sometimes sort of, if I, when I'm teaching on university campuses, like to be iconoclastic and go, at times I wonder whether I actually believe in human rights. <laughs> I, I think I do, but I'm increasingly struggling. I believe in human responsibility that rather than you have a right to not being you know, dinged around the head with a baseball bat, I have a responsibility not to ding you around the head with a baseball bat. And responsibility then opens up all kinds of other things. I was saying to Ian backstage, like I read the other day, Brazil, I think it is, have just granted human rights to, to part of their rainforests, uh, rights to rainforests, because they don't want them being cut down and deforested. And I found myself thinking, that's ludicrous. Rainforests don't have rights. Human beings have a responsibility to the natural world. And then you see, that brings us into family. Because I, I think not merely do we have a right to family life, I also think in family we have a responsibility to each other. Why do I treat my children a certain way? Not because they have a particular right, but because I have a responsibility as their father in order to raise them, to care for them, to protect them and nurture them. And I think responsibility, if we start looking through that lens, brings us together. And I think at the heart of Christianity is also this profound idea of family, that God has created us, that love is the supreme ethic in the universe, and God has created us to love one another and to love him. There's a vertical relationality and a horizontal relationality that lies at the heart of Christian ethics, the whole other discussion. But I think you're dead on, and if you're going into law, shout that one loudly. She's already there. You're already there. Sorry, I thought you said <laughs> student. Shout it loudly, because we need to have that voice heard. Lawyers or humans do. We got that. Oh, Some of my um, best friends are lawyers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we are out of time. So we'll wrap up here. But again, Andy and Ian will stay here. We, we kind of skipped over you over Sorry. here. So we'll, oh. we'll let you come to them first. But thank you so much for joining us here. Make sure you go to the table. Uh, check out the resource from, from Andy thank and Ian. Thank you so much. Thank you.